That was fun, and a fun introduction to our topic today. Well, passage for today, because, you know, I'm not doing on a topic. I'm doing it about what Jesus would have for you guys to, to learn. We're in Romans 4 today, and I've heard people say that Romans is kind of a doctrinal summary of the whole counsel of God, kind of a doctrinal summary of the Bible. And as I've been teaching through Romans at Restoration, I've been seeing why they would say that. Uh, the threads of the themes of Romans really just spread out throughout all of the Word of God. And especially this topic, the topic of justification by faith and grace, not by works, is really what all of it is about, right? It's a hard message to prepare because how do you quote the whole Bible um, on a Sunday morning? Uh, I, I'm not going to. to. To get a running start at it, a little background in Romans. He wrote Romans for a few side reasons and one major reason. And the side reasons were things like introducing himself because he didn't know the church there, asking for prayer, for, prayer support for future missions and and things like that. And then the main reason was to strengthen their foundation in the gospel. See, they were a real church, but they hadn't been visited by an apostle yet. They weren't started by an apostle. The elders weren't picked by an apostle. And Paul knew that. He knew of their faith, and he knew that they, uh, they could use some apostolic theology, an apostolic strengthening of their foundation in the gospel. And so he writes this beautiful letter to these strangers in the flesh, but brothers in Christ. And uh, in the first three chapters, Paul laid down a comprehensive indictment against all humankind. It was, it was weeks of teaching sin to youth, but that's where we start, right? We'll get into that more later, but it was three chapters of a Comprehensive indictment against all humankind. The moral Gentile and the immoral Gentile are both condemned for their sin. They have violated the moral law of God embedded in them as image bearers of their creator, both by outright offensive sin and by pridefully taking upon themselves the mantle as judge over others. Likewise, the moral Jew and the immoral Jew are equally condemned for their law-breaking, which in a way was worse because they were given the explicit law of God and they knew that it was only him who judged over mankind. The Jews in the church needed to be reminded that the law was not a standard to meet in order to be considered righteous. It was given to show humanity their need for a savior by increasing knowledge of sin. And the Gentiles needed to be reminded that righteousness absolutely matters. Which brings us to here. But because it's a letter, it's hard to really isolate thoughts you know, when someone sends you an email, you don't read the first sentence one day and think about it all day and then read the next sentence the next day. You kind of just read the whole email. You may focus on a sentence for days after, but, but just get a running start at this, uh, the passage we're going to be focusing on. I'm going to read chapter 3, starting in verse 21. So if you could read with me now, we're in Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? He is, not the God, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. And now Paul in chapter 4 is going to build on the argument that justification is by grace through faith and not works according to the flesh by transitioning from this hypothetical reasoning to a flesh and blood example, an example most of his readers would be at least basically familiar with and one that all of us are probably basically familiar with, which is Abraham. He uses Abraham as the main example throughout all of chapter 4. I'm going to reference some of the other things in chapter 4 as well, but let's make sure we're talking about the same story and the same person here. Abraham was the first and foremost of the Jewish patriarchs and their model of a righteous man. A prominent Jewish rabbi once taught that Abraham stands at the gates of hell preventing circumcised Jewish men from falling in. He and his sons were the first to participate in that sign, uh, circumcision, which epitomizes in Hebrew tradition their chosen nature as the set-apart and special people of God. They looked back at Abraham and saw how he followed the commands of God, specifically in circumcision, and how God promised to bless him. And they say, that is a man who was blessed because he was righteous. Some of their writings, like the Prayer of Manasseh and the Book of Jubilees, even go as far as to say that Abraham was sinless and perfect. But a careful look at the timeline of Abraham's faith in God reveals the truth. Now, I'm going to have to ask for a little bit of an indulgence. Uh, I'm going to probably consistently refer to him as Abraham, but at one point his name was changed from Abram to Abraham. Please just excuse this mental crutch. I I don't, to flip back and forth is confusing, so I'm just going to, it's just Abraham. You can translate in your your own head. Um, And some of you guys would probably be picky about that, so just please forgive me in advance. Thank you. Romans 12, uh, Genesis 12, sorry, starts, tells us the beginning of the story of Abraham. And it starts with, now the Lord said to Abram. But Abraham at that time, see what I'm going to do there? Abraham, Abram, I'm just going to, Abraham. Abraham was a ninth generation idol worshiper from the city of Ur. He was wealthy and his family was well established there. And then one day God spoke to Abraham. See, God initiated the conversation. He initiated the conversation by giving Abraham instructions And he made him a grand promise of a blessed future for all humanity. He said this. It's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham believed God and left his hometown. This idol worshiper who wasn't looking for God was found by God and God made a promise to him and said, go, and Abraham went. But 
he didn't obey really that well. God said, leave your stuff and your relatives, but Abraham took his stuff and some relatives with him. God said, go to the land I will show you, but then he wasted 15 years in Haran. Finally, he made it to Canaan, but he continued to take what God said to leave behind. <clears throat> then a famine hit Canaan, and instead of going to God for help, Abraham left the land where God had sent him and went to Egypt where he lied about his marriage to Sarah out of fear that Pharaoh would think she was cute and kill him to take her. This caused misery in Pharaoh's house and in Abraham's. Can you imagine going home to your wife after lying like that? This is hardly a sinless man. Even after God made a promise and called him out of idolatry in the land of Ur, but Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God said he would give him a son, and they figured God needed some help with that. After all, they were both approaching 100 years old, and so Abraham and Sarah agreed that adultery was how God wanted them to have a son. Oof. So Abraham had a son with Sarah's maid Hagar, and this caused all sorts of suffering in his house. And in the world, as we're still seeing the side effects of that adultery today by the constant violence in the Middle East. But Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And over a decade after Abraham was declared righteous, God gave the sign of circumcision to be applied to Abraham and his son by Hagar, Ishmael. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham had been declared righteous already even though he was terrible at obedience. <laughs> but he trusted in God's promises. And then God reminded Abraham that he had said they would have a legitimate son, the son of promise. And their reaction to this promise was laughter. They both, in their individual, individual spots, laughed at that in their hearts. Again, thinking, how could we possibly do this? We are so old. And then God gave them a son proving that the object of their faith had the power to deliver on his promises. Over and over again, we see Abraham's sin, the suffering caused by his sin, God's reminder of his promises, his grace extended to Abraham, and we see Abraham then responding in faith and obedience. God reiterated that promise to Abraham's son Isaac and his son Jacob, later renamed Israel. God made a promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him, and God kept that promise. Jesus' life and ministry, his death and resurrection was the fulfillment of that promise. God made that promise to a ninth-generation idol worshiper who couldn't and sometimes wouldn't obey perfectly, but that flawed, fearful, formal idol worshiper believed what God said, and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And it's on the foundation of Abraham's life that Paul continues to build his case that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Jesus, only Jesus, and all for the glory of God. Now, let's read Romans 4, 1 through 8. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It starts with, what then shall we say that Abraham has found? But he calls Abraham our forefather according to the flesh in reference to his place in the traditional Jewish thinking that he's the model of justification by works of righteousness. But thinking that justification is by works is not isolated to just those traditionally minded Jews. Every world religion, including some divergent denominations of Christianity, teach that it is man's responsibility to work to achieve rightness with their deity. But that is not what Abraham has found. Abraham found justification apart from works. In that story of Abraham, we see God reaching down into the life of a spiritually dead sinner, changing the path of that sinner's life, promising eternal blessing, and then declaring that sinner righteous as a gift of his grace through faith. And then we see God keeping his promise despite the sinner's inability to obey perfectly. Why? Because the promise never depended on him in the first place. Speaking of the sinner, it was made before the sinner could respond. We see God's grace over and over again, giving that sinner chance after chance after chance to put his renewed trust in God and obey out of love for God and faith in his promises. And so Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness. God's favor was extended to Abraham through faith and definitely not because of his character. Moving on, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Here Paul uses another hypothetical argument to further set up his point using Abraham as the model. And the major idea here is solid. If humans could justify themselves by works, they would have something to boast about. But who gets the glory in that situation? It's not God. Any action or system of belief that gives glory to anyone or anything but God is idolatry. The point Paul is making, however is not that pure hypothetical, but showing that, that nonsensical hypothetical that doesn't end in the glory of God and can't be lived out perfectly, is that Abraham didn't have anything to boast about before God. And if Abraham couldn't boast in his own righteousness, then we definitely have nothing to boast about. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul laid the groundwork for this argument. He has built up to this point by quoting the Psalms. There is none righteous, not even one, There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. We see this clearly evidenced in the life of Abraham. Abraham was not seeking after God when God called him. And even when Abraham did obey in faith, he didn't obey that well. God said, leave your stuff and your relatives. He brought his stuff and his relatives. Yeah, he went, but kind of at a limp, I guess. The undeserved gift of God's grace is so evident. And that is what he found. He's not the patriarch of salvation by works. He's the patriarch of sinful humankind needing the grace of God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. As someone who has gotten out of debt in the past, I love that word credited. Credited. It's a 
accounting term. You know, I, I, I read this and I think of a balance sheet, which uh, finances to me are like a foreign film without subtitles. I don't get it. But I can look at a balance sheet and I can see a column that has red numbers in it and a column that has black numbers in it. And I can do simple math and pray that when I get to the bottom, I've got a black number, not a red number. You guys with me there? Yeah. <laughs> so this is what we're talking about. We are born with infinite debt in that red column. <clears throat> According to works of righteousness, we can't get out of that. Infinite red in that, in that debit column. Yet when we place our faith in Jesus, his righteousness account is transferred to ours, and he has infinite black in that credit column. His account is transferred to ours, leaving us with an eternal surplus, which is like a beautiful term when you're talking about finances, right? Surplus. We got a surplus? No way. We got spending money? Amazing. But that, that is what people talk about when they'd say the big theological term, imputed righteousness. That's what it is. That's what it is. We have infinite credit in Jesus, in the righteousness account. We can stumble and fall, but because it's Jesus' infinite righteousness account, we're never going to overdraw. We're never even going to get to the bottom of that account. I would have loved to have a credit card like that as a teenager. <laughs> That's imputed righteousness. Now, we got to talk about this. What about the things that Abraham did that showed faith in God? Because it just said, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. What about that time when God told him to sacrifice his son, the son through whom Abraham's family would grow to outnumber the stars in the sky or sand on the shore? And Abraham obeyed immediately. He set out early the next morning, go as far, going as far as tying his son to the hand-built altar and raising a knife full of actual intent to follow through. Hebrews tells us that he did that believing that God would raise his son from the dead. Because how can you have a big family without any kids? And God said, kill his kid. And he's like, I, okay, well, I guess God's going to raise him from the dead. Does that, does that not count as a righteous work? Is that not something Abraham did to earn favor with God? No. Look at the timeline. Abraham had already been declared righteous before Ab Isaac was even born, before he could obey God being circumcised. How could Abraham have obeyed God without the intervention of God's grace in his life, calling him out of an idolatrous life? How could the unrighteous produce acts of righteousness? See, when we put our faith in God as recipients of his grace, it is his righteousness that, is what, that enables us to obey and act in faith. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So, is faith in God a work that leads, to, leads one to salvation or justification? No, faith is a response to the grace of God extended to us, the sinner, through which God saves that sinner and imputes his righteousness to them. Verse 5 makes it really, really clear. And listen to the grammar of this. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Having faith there is not counted as a work. If it was, then our salvation would be because 
of something we had done and we would then have cause to boast. We would then deserve salvation as the wages of our ability to produce good works or even produce faith in God. But we have already learned that argument is moot because there is none righteous, not one. There is none who understands. And what else? There is none who seeks God. Spurgeon once said, if God had not sought me, I definitely would not have sought him. When Abraham laid his son on the altar, raising that knife in belief that God would raise Isaac from the dead afterwards, it was an act of obedience having already experienced God's grace through faith. Abraham neither drew God's initial attention by works of righteousness, nor did he retain God's favor by acts of obedience. It was the promise of God that secured him, not works done in faith. He simply trusted that God had the power to deliver on his promises because faith is only as good as the objects on which that faith is placed. So Abraham's faith in God was good, but only good because of who God is. Abraham's faith in God was not a work of righteousness leading to the blessings of God. It was trusting in God entirely because he knew that he himself had nothing to offer. It was a surrender of sorts. Faith isn't a work. It's like an anti-work. It is the trusting in the work of God. I tell the students all the time that faith that leads to salvation is like EpiPen faith. EpiPen faith. If a person has a, has a severe enough allergy that they have to carry an EpiPen, say like a peanut allergy. I heard once that somebody was allergic to peanuts. Oh, I met somebody once who was allergic to peanuts even if they were around them. There could be like, like the impression of nuts in the air and their body would freak out. But when they come in contact with that allergen, the EpiPen they carry is what will save them. So if someone with a peanut allergy eats a peanut, they have a limited amount of time in which to use it. They begin to swell up, their throats start closing, cutting off their airway, they're going to die. And they have a choice to make in that moment. It can be daunting when you're not in that imminent danger to think of stabbing yourself in the leg with, with this pen that when you push the little button on the end, it rockets out a needle and it sprays medicine into you. Like, it's a violent procedure. It leaves bruises, and it's, it's rough, and it can be scary to think about. But if they don't, they're going to die. The act of stabbing themselves with that EpiPen as a mean, is, is the means by which that medication saves their life, and it's done in faith that the EpiPen will save them. If it fails, they're going to die. And if it succeeds, they owe it all to the EpiPen. Yeah, they stabbed themselves with it, but the doctor prescribed it, the pharmaceutical company made it, and the medication saved their life. Their participation was simply an act of trust. Without being given the pen and the knowledge of its use, they would have no chance of surviving that peanut. And this is a tricky thing to contemplate for us. But James puts it really neatly when he teaches that faith without works is dead. Why? Because faith is evident in action. You can have all the faith in the world that the EpiPen will save you, but if you don't stab yourself, you reveal your faithlessness and you're going to die. Faith is proven by action, but not a work itself. It is entirely dependent on the object of your faith. If you try to use a regular pen in that moment, all the faith in the world isn't going to save you. You're going to die. <laughs> Abraham had faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness and that faith was demonstrated by leaving his home, by raising the knife. And that was after God had called him out of darkness and promised him a blessed future. And that depended on God and not on Abraham. Paul moves on and he brings up another 
big name, another big name, David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, David was also called by God to be set apart for a holy purpose because the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. David was not special in himself. When Samuel asked Jesse to bring out his son so that God would tell him which one would be the new king of Israel, Jesse left David out in the fields with the sheep. But God called David out of the pasture and into the palace. David knew God's grace very, very well. His psalms reflect a life spent turning back to the Lord again and again after failure to trust and obey. He was dependent on God's forgiveness to sustain him. Paul quotes Psalm 32 here, which David wrote after his most famous of failings. Famous of failings. You know, David saw a beautiful woman and then committed premeditated murder and a scheme to commit adultery with her. And if you're keeping score, that's like 40% of the Ten Commandments right there. When we think of righteousness by works, David doesn't qualify. But when we think of righteousness by faith, David's a man after God's own heart. He wasn't chosen because of his righteousness, but rather his neediness. His need for God's grace kept him chasing after God, pursuing righteousness and falling in love with the Lord and his law. He's an example to us in that regard. And if we are to be people after God's own heart, we will mimic the way he mourns his sin and clings to grace. His words in Psalm 32 here, written after a failing to obey so dramatically, they display this dependence on God's grace with poetic simplicity. Let's read it. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So, this faith in God is not new. And it didn't start with Jesus. 4,000 years ago, Abraham was declared righteous by a gift of God's grace through faith. 1,000 years later, David was called a man after God's own heart because of God's grace through faith. Both of these men trusted in the promise of God, that promise that was fulfilled by Jesus. Both Abraham and David knew who they were or would be without the mercy and grace of God. See, salvation is kind of a covenant between God and man. And these two men show us our side of the covenant. They show us how to be truly righteous. And it starts with realizing our total depravity and then having faith in God alone because without him, we are utterly doomed. And that's our side of the covenant is neediness. It's neediness. See, we, we give him our sin in response to him giving us grace and faith, forgiveness, he gives us his righteousness in exchange for our sin. And that's a really good deal. That's a really good deal. That's why the Bible is so full of sinful people. I hear this criticism from the world about, about the Bible all the time. It's like, how can you believe in, a, believe in God when the Bible is so full of wickedness and sin? There's awful things happening in there. It's like, yeah, that's because people are terrible. People are terrible. We need Jesus so much. The law in the Old Testament was the setup. You know, that was like, that was like Scottie Pippen tossing it to Michael Jordan so he could dunk it. <laughs> 90s bulls were awesome. 
These sinful people show us that there is none righteous, not even the patriarchs of our faith, not even the first and foremost Abraham, and not even the first and foremost of the kings from the line of Judah from which Jesus Christ came, through, came into the world. There is none righteous, not one. See, Abraham and David both believed in the promises of God, and those promises revolved around, pointed to, were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. They had faith in God's power to fulfill his promises, and their sins were covered by Jesus on the cross. We look back at the fulfilled promises of God and Jesus, and likewise have our sins covered by his sacrifice for us. And because of that faith in Jesus, we too can receive the imputation of his righteousness. We too, when called out of darkness and into light and life, are recipients of God's grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves, it's only the work of God. And all of that disqualifies us from being able to boast before him. It's why, by his grace, we can fail to obey and still find ourselves declared righteous in him. His account never runs out. His grace gives us another chance to walk by faith because the righteous will live by faith. Grace doesn't free you to live however you want. It frees you so that you have the ability then to obey. When I teach the students how to, how to study their Bible, I have them ask three questions in their process as they read and seek to understand what Scripture has for them. You know, there's, there's little points that you can add, like we use what's clear to help us understand what's unclear. But really, these three questions can help us get to the heart of it. What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it change? What does it say? Ask for simple observation. Literally, just what does it say? And only after understanding what it says can we understand what it means, which it only ever means one thing. If it can mean more than one thing, it can mean anything. If it means anything, it means nothing. <clears throat> but then after we learn what it means, we need to ask God what it should change in us. Because we need to be like the wise builder who heard the words of the Lord and acted on it and had that firm foundation, not the foolish builder who heard the words of the Lord and didn't change a thing. So what should this passage change? Paul is writing to this church in Rome, to a believing audience. And here we are in the church, Jews and Gentiles alike. I think it's more Gentiles than Jews, honestly, but I got you covered. <laughs> here we are, believers in the church, hearing this one message of significance that is deep and wide. Like I said earlier, this really is the heart of what all the Bible is about. That's why it was so hard to prepare this message. Like, I'm not going to just... I can't just read you the whole Bible as much as I'd want to. You go home and do it yourself, okay? All right. Fantastic. <laughs> but I want to highlight two ways in which this passage should instruct our hearts, and that's an inward understanding and an outward expression. Inward understanding and an outward expression. Even though Paul doesn't know these people personally, he knows his audience because he knows human nature and he knows himself he knows from Scripture in his own life that humanity is absolutely fallen by nature. And that fall has its root in one major sin, pride. Our pride is what leads us to think that we can please God with our self-righteousness and that we're good enough. It makes us think that we are in control of our health and wealth. And it's our pride that makes us hesitant to think of ourselves as totally depraved apart from the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Paul knew what it was to be proud in his works and how easy it is to get wrapped up in the pride of thinking that righteousness is under your control. 
But when he considered his past works compared to Christ, he saw them as what? Filthy rags. Now, no one likes to be told they're incompetent and that all their good works amount to just filthy rags. No one likes to be told that they need to give up control. No one likes to be told that while they're swimming their hardest, they're actually drowning. No one likes to be told that uh, the way they're living their life is sinful and wrong. And even believers sometimes have a hard time being reminded that we contribute nothing good to our own salvation. It is a gift of God, and what began in the Spirit cannot be perfected in the flesh. I was talking to some students this last week about the fruit of the Spirit and what that really means. It's not these personality traits about you that are pleasant to be around. No, you could be a kind person and have that not be a fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruits of Arthur, then. I'm like, I'm not saved by grace to then be my best self. I'm saved by grace to be, be like Jesus. The fruits of the Spirit are what comes out of that faith. Sadly, we tend to have short memories. We forget so easily. We are ridiculously blessed in our country, in this town, and as believers. And when, we, when things are easy, it's, it's easy, really easy and tempting to look at ourself, right? To look at ourself as the, as the source of the goodness. We like to think that because we are so constantly present in our lives, that we're the top decision maker. But of course we're always present in our lives. We're literally like right there. But we're the ones that we can see, right? We like to think that we're the source of all these things. That we're the top decision maker, provider, or caregiver. And this comes out in different ways. It comes out in stress or confidence, right? Stress or confidence. You can stress about how you're going to provide for your family. What happens if you get sick or injured or can't work? What if you lose your job? How will you provide for your family if the economy crashes and the dollar plummets? You know, a lot of wives feel the same way. How do they take care of their family? Trying to keep people healthy is a slippery slope of contradicting opinions and lots of fear that everything is toxic. Or, or what can you do to be a good mom? Or how do you raise good kids? On the other hand, people don't struggle with stress and fear. They look at their lives and they look at themselves with pride. You know, oh, I've provided for my family well, or oh, I've raised good kids. But the problem with these mindsets is it excludes God's sovereignty, forgetting that we are not the ones who truly provide for our families. We're not the ones that change the hearts of our kids. We're not the ones who make our family healthy or wealthy. God is in control. He may choose to make an incredibly smart, hard worker homeless or promote a lazy moron to the level of a billionaire. He is the one that decides that the person who smoked for 60 years won't get cancer while the marathon-running, clean-eating green man does. God is in control. Now, this example is superficial. It's superficial, right? Talking about, you know, like, this stuff isn't, like, tied to salvation, right? But that's the problem. That's the problem. There's a battle going on for our hearts and our minds over who should get the glory and our sinful flesh and the enemy are constantly trying to draw our eyes away from God and the eternal to instead focus on the temporal and onto ourselves. Even as Christians, we can forget. We can forget the grace of God and fall prey to our own pride in this way. We are saved by grace, but when we talk about whether or not our lives are going well or if we're successful or we're good husbands, wives, parents, employees, whatever, sometimes we judge ourselves based on not on faithfulness to God and his word, but on the standards of the American dream. Are we healthy? Are we wealthy? Are we happy? Are, do our kids behave or do they shame us in Walmart? Like, this is works-based stuff, drawing our eyes away from the, our eternal need and what we ought to be doing. 
But when we meditate on our need for God's grace, turning our eyes to the true provider, we increase in our thankfulness for what we never deserved, yet are freely given. And we fall more in love with our Savior. This may include health and wealth, but if it doesn't, that's fine. Someone with EpiPen faith is eternally grateful for God's grace, and that's sufficient for them. They turn their eyes from themselves and onto their loving Savior, and from that love comes good works. Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so we see that the inward understanding of our depravity and need for grace comes out in outward expression. Just like true faith leads to action, love for God leads to love for others. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven and he's been talking about being ready for the Lord to return at any moment and being faithful to use what he has given us while we have the chance to use it. And he finishes his discourse in the famous sheets and goats separation event. And it's no accident that what separates the two is love for others. Let's go there. Matthew 25. I'm going to start reading in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in glory, in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you by the, uh, from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty, or give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, to the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And we already know that righteous, righteous, by, by saying those who are righteous, he means those who have received God's grace through faith. That's imputed righteousness. And that righteousness is shown by their love for others. But look at this. It's not just any other. The list here doesn't contain role models or friends, mothers, fathers, pastors, next door neighbors. Look at the list. Hungry and thirsty, the stranger, the naked and sick and the imprisoned. This passage causes me to check myself. I want you to check yourself too. Heart check time. It is easy to say, I love God because of his grace, but hard to extend that love and grace to others. Jesus includes other people and other teachings that we are to love. Matthew 5, love your enemies. Luke 10, love your neighbor. On that occasion, the, uh, 
An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, and who is my neighbor? And who did Jesus say was the neighbor? It wasn't a fellow Jew. It wasn't like the nice guy down the street. It wasn't a local priest. It was a Samaritan who was hated by that Jewish man, a Samaritan who was a descendant of law-breaking, intermarrying sinners who refused to worship God in the temple at Jerusalem. Absolutely, it was that type of person who is the neighbor. That is who we're supposed to love. Jesus says, if you love me, if you love me, you will, you will love others. You will obey my commands. Jesus' own example shows us God loved sinful humanity so much that he sent his son to the world. We who were dead in our sin, alienated and hostile toward God and unable to please him, he went to us. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's why I say check yourself. Because if you truly believe that you are completely depraved apart from the saving grace of God and that any righteous act you display is only an expression of the imputed righteousness of God given as a gift of his grace, you will begin to see others the same way. You will see them for what they are. You'll see that same need to be declared righteous by faith in the God who made them and loves them. They need rescue and we have the cure They are lost in darkness, and we're like the lighthouse keepers. Your outward expression of love and gratitude for what God has done will be extended in unconditional love to those around you, and not just to those people who agree with your political views or obey the law, or have a job and a place to live, not just natural citizens or people from first world countries who speak English, not just to people who share your same values or taste of music, skin color, or even your faith in God. Sometimes we vilify those people who are lost in their sin, don't we? They're not our enemies. You'll show that love equally to all people because all people need the grace of God equally. You'll love others as an expression of your love for Jesus caused by the imputation of his righteousness in you as a gift through faith. I'm repeating myself on purpose. And that came to you while you were dead in your sins and unable to save yourself. The gospel is shamed when we don't love our neighbor, when we judge the homeless or when we're ruthless with the criminal or when we treat those who are dead in sin as the enemy. And when we judge according to works, even when we look at our own lives and say, look what I have done and gotten for myself. We trample the cross of Christ underfoot because if works mean anything, his death on the cross meant nothing. Be an Abraham. Be a David. Be a Paul. Be you, a sinner saved by grace. These men looked at their life and saw nothing of worth apart from their experience with the grace of God, which they never deserved. Be like Jesus, who touched the leper, had lunch with the tax collector, gave grace to the thief on the cross, who had no opportunity to show any kind of good works at all as he hung on a cross dying for his crimes next to his Savior who was dying for his sins. Together. Let's push towards increasing love and good works in the likeness of Christ, out of love for Christ, seeking to glorify God above everything, including and especially ourselves. Let's remember the gospel of grace extended to us in our depravity so we can extend that same grace to others in need. This is what it changes. 
when we truly understand our need and depravity, we see the world equally in need. When we are truly grateful for the love we've been extended, that comes out in love extended to others. I'm going to finish with this story from Luke 18. Starting in verse 9. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, Father God, thank you for your grace. I confess that I have withheld love from people because I have judged them based on their outward appearance or behavior and thought myself superior, and please forgive me of that sin. And thank you for your grace that covers me when I don't deserve it, when I don't obey perfectly or at all, and don't acknowledge that all I have that is good is from you. Thank you for your promise that secures me, even when I forget to look to you. Thank you for all you do for me, a former idolater and sinner. Thank you for your grace, God. Thank you for being the God who you are, that I can depend on your promises for the salvation and justification of my soul. And thank you that on top of grace, you give me your righteousness to help me give you glory by obeying you in love. God, I ask you that that you cause an inward change in our hearts towards those who you love. Make us compassionate and kind and generous and loving, eager to put the gospel in front of those who don't believe, who are lost in their sin. Eager to remember that gospel, that it can be so offensive to our prideful flesh, but so uplifting, God, looking full in the face the depths of our sin so we can revel and rejoice in the height of your grace. Please put that gospel in the front of our minds and on the tips of our tongues so that we are quick to share your love with our neighbors. We don't deserve what you have freely given us and we thank you for your grace and love. God, you are amazing. We love you and help us love you more. Amen.